This episode contains sensitive content that may not be appropriate for listeners of all ages. Listener discretion is advised. From Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Mountainland Physical Therapy's Pelvic Health Podcast. I am your host, Madison Spland. Thanks for listening. Today's topic, postpartum pelvic health. We speak with Dr. Erica Faircloth, OBGYN. Dr. Faircloth received her degree in biology from the University of Utah and attended medical school at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Her OBGYN residency was at the PIROG in Arizona. Currently, Dr. Faircloth is a treating OBGYN at Old Farm Obstetrics and Gynecology in Salt Lake City, Utah. She has a special interest in infertility treatments and laparoscopic surgical treatments. Thank you for being here today. You're welcome, Madison. It's so nice to talk with you. So for all of our listeners out there, we're going to be discussing different topics regarding to the postpartum pelvic health, including episiotomies, C-section healing, red flag signs and symptoms to call the doctor, diastasis recti, urinary incontinence, um, exercise precautions, and indications on when you should initiate exercise. So Dr. Faircloth, to start off, can you describe to our listeners some of the really important symptoms to watch out for during the early weeks after labor and delivery that may indicate the need to go or call a doctor? You bet. Um, you know, it's always really important to just be aware of how you're feeling. Postpartum is a really rough time for a lot of people because you're tired. You just had a baby. You've been through a lot. Um, and there's a lot of things that are changing in that immediate postpartum period. Um, but there's some things that we need to be really super careful about and keep an eye out for. Um, we always talk about making sure that people feel like they have good resources too. So before you leave the hospital, it's super important to know where to call and what things you should be looking for. Um, really important warning signs postpartum. We always look for depression symptoms. Um, depression can manifest in lots of different ways postpartum. Some people just don't feel like getting up and doing anything. Some people start to feel very sad and tearful. Um, a lot of us actually get anxiety and have um, difficulty with being able to kind of stop thinking anxious thoughts or feeling really extra worried about things. Um, additionally, some people start to suffer with some really um, wild mood swings, which can be problematic as well. Um, if anyone is starting to feel as if they are worried about those symptoms or their family members are speaking up and telling them that they're a little worried, that's the time to give us a call. Um, other things we always are looking for, depending on the mode of delivery, um, we always are looking for signs of infection. So if you go home and get fevers, chills, if um, incisions are starting to drain or have worsening pain, those are things to look out for and give us a call about. Um, it's normal postpartum to have bleeding. That's just kind of part of life. We always are worried, though, if we start seeing an increase in bleeding or passing big clots. Um, those are things that can happen but are concerning if they're occurring, um, worsening after you go home from the hospital. Very nice. And then would you say that there's difference in the red flag signs and symptoms from vaginal delivery compared to C-sections? And like, if so, what are those? 
Absolutely. Um, obviously, with a C-section delivery, we've got a, an abdominal incision, and so that can present some difficulties and also um, definitely can cause pain. Um, but again, if that incision starts to have lots of drainage, um, blood or other fluid leaking out, if it looks like the edges of the incision are starting to come apart, or again, if pain starts to get worse instead of better when you go home, that's definitely a red flag and something to contact your doctor about. Very nice. Yeah, I know that I personally had a C-section. I don't think um, I had any idea how much pain was really going to ensue once you go home. So that was a eye-opening experience for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> so kind of moving along, obviously, there's our two major types of delivery. We have a vaginal delivery versus a C-section delivery. And obviously, we're going to have different considerations postpartum depending on this mode of delivery. So moving forward, we're going to kind of talk about some of the symptoms that occur post-vaginal delivery. And then we'll kind of talk about symptoms that occur post C-section, and then we'll kind of go over different conditions that can happen with both. Okay. So Dr. Faircloth, kind of talking about episiotomy care now, what instructions about episiotomy care and precautions do you give to your patients and when? Absolutely. Well, um, the uh, term episiotomy usually means when it's a surgically made or an incision that's made to help get a baby delivered. Um, women also very commonly will just have a, a tear um, because of, of baby moving out of the body. Um, so that is an area that either way, whether it's done um, to try to help babies out or if it happens on its own, um, it's a perineal tear. And those tears do hurt, but they do also heal in most cases pretty darn well, which is fortunate. We're lucky for that. Um, when these occur, the delivering physician will put some stitches in and, and put that area back together when the delivery has been completed. Um, most often those stitches are uh, absorbable type of suture. Um, and so it does take some time for those to reabsorb. And a lot of people will kind of notice that there is maybe a little bit of a, a bit of that suture and that they can kind of feel or sometimes see. Um, over the course of the next few weeks after delivery, that should start to um, absorb underneath the tissue and then eventually just go away on its own. During that time, however, it's important to keep an eye out for, again, the edges not staying together. Um, having discharge from that area that seems like it may not be typical with just a little bit of bleeding. You don't want to see things that are yellow or green coming out of there. And especially if it starts to hurt again more than it did from leaving the hospital, that is a warning sign that it may be getting infected or having a problem with healing. Things that we can do to try to make these areas feel better during the healing process. Ice packs initially are really good to help decrease swelling, which is very common as an episiotomy or as a perineal tear heals. Um, cool water or warm water, whichever feels better, um, in a little bottle. We usually have those at the hospital that we give you, to, and the nurses will train you on using those after a baby to help rinse that area to avoid it being um, uncomfortable when you're using the bathroom. Um, having some medications topically can be very helpful. Um, a lot of times we will have a little uh, spray of a topical lidocaine type medication that will help to numb that tissue a little bit. Um, additionally, a little sits bath, short uh, amount of water in a tub that's sometimes even pretty warm can feel really good to help that area with stitches 
heal. Um, and those are things that can be done at home and, and really for the first couple of weeks after delivery to help not only the healing process, but also to help make it just feel better while that's going on. Very nice. And at what point with an episiotomy pain remaining or like remaining discomfort, do you refer to physical therapy? Is it the six week? Do you give it a few more weeks and tell them to call? What is your common like clinical practice? I, that's a great question. You know, a lot of times these um, will heal superficially. The skin will be healed over, the stitches will reabsorb but there's still some pain. And part of that is just because it's a lot of um, stretching and, and some of the muscle that underlies the skin still has to heal together. Um, so, you know, we talk about that when we're doing our postpartum visits and I usually see my patients um, at about six weeks and we kind of talk about how they're feeling. And, you know, by that point, usually the pain is getting better um, but sometimes, you know, if you touch that little spot with the scar directly, it definitely can, can be painful. But there are some people who have a lot of pain, whether it's being, you know, when they're walking around, moving, or even just, just not doing much at all. Those are the patients we start to worry maybe having nerves that are a little bit over sensitive or a healing process that's not going very well. Um, and those are patients that can really benefit from doing early physical therapy. So for those listeners out there, the physical therapy post-episiotomy, during the evaluation, we're looking at the incision, we're looking at the blood flow. Um, more often than not, individuals are having an episiotomy or a tear downward, besides the lucky population where it goes up, which is not optimal. Um, <laughs> but So we assess the, the muscle length, we look at the strength. How well can the muscle lengthen with a pelvic push or a pelvic bear down? Um, and then how much pain is going on? And is the pain just at the episiotomy? Is it along the other muscles that may have been um, affected? Obviously, we have multiple grades of the episiotomy, grade one, two, three, and four. Grade four being the worst, which goes through the anal sphincter complex. Individuals with a grade four tear definitely have increased risk for fecal and urinary incontinence, pain, and sexual dysfunction. So those are ones that we're definitely looking out for. Um, but treatments going forward, we do, you know, soft tissue mobilization through that scar, different cross friction massage techniques. Sometimes we'll also encourage lidocaine options. Um, if they're persisting with painful intercourse, we'll start dilator training to help for a prolonged stretch and encourage that as a home program. And then just stretching, you know, there's a couple easy stretches that women can do postpartum once cleared by the doctor so that we're not causing the stitches to dehiss, but mm -hmm. you could do a happy baby pose. Mm -hmm. You could do the butterfly stretch. So there are different stretches that you can work on um, postpartum to help loosen those tissues up as well. And individuals can also, once those stitches are absorbed, do gentle soft tissue work themselves mm -hmm. to help to re, you know, if it is that nerve dysfunction, just kind of reintegrate, reteach the brain the difference between the soft tissue and the pad of the finger and reintegrating that sensation rather than the burning that is generally the burning or the sharp or the pins and needles, which are the descriptor words that I will generally hear. Absolutely. Yes. And then moving along, another awesome thing that can happen postpartum with our individuals more commonly I have found with vaginal delivery rather than a C-section is 
postpartum coccyx pain. So Dr. Faircloth, in your clinical experience, what seems to cause this coccyx pain postpartum? Well, actually, that's that's interesting that you brought this up because I actually have personal experience with um, I Certainly after the delivery of my first baby and even after my second, I did have lots of tailbone pain. Um, I think the risk factor that I had was simply having had a broken tailbone in the past. Um, and so certainly that re-aggravated that childhood injury that I had. And um, it definitely was a noticeable um, postpartum uh, uh, problem that I had. Um, the fortunate thing about this type of, uh, of pain or dysfunction is that it does tend to be self-limited. It does tend to get better with time, um, but it's absolutely something that can be associated not just with um, delivery, but just being pregnant because um, all that extra pelvic pressure um, can aggravate that uh, tailbone area and uh, cause, cause women some pain and discomfort. Um, the signs and symptoms of this type of a, a injury or re-injury um, often are pain just in that way back tailbone, particularly if I remember noticing this when I was at a movie theater because I had put my feet up on the chair in front of me and boy, that really got just. So that's something that, that when you bring your knees up, if you're feeling lots of pain right back in the very base of your spine, um, that's often that tailbone being aggravated. And there was a recent article on coccyx pain in women after childbirth um, by Marquez Garcia that kind of talked about how this is a symptom that is occurring right after delivery. Uh, it showed in this study they found risk factors including a higher BMI, vaginal delivery, instrumental delivery, um, multiple childbirth. Mm -hmm. um, uh, older population as well as a shorter perineal tissue. Mm -hmm. um, and then it also showed that activities including pelvic floor massage did help to reduce these painful symptoms if they were persisting. Mm -hmm. and clinically, what I will find a lot of times is if they have tailbone pain, if I am palpating vaginally and I can feel the coccyx, it, that means it's generally deviated. Mm -hmm. um, a pelvic therapist should not be able to feel the coccyx vaginally. We should only be able to feel it rectally if it's in nice alignment. And so I find a correlation between the coccyx pain and a deviated coccyx. So then we're doing different like soft tissue mobilizations through the levator ani. All of those muscles attach right onto that apex of the coccyx bone. And for listeners out there, the coccyx is very small. It's a shape of a triangle and it's at the base of the sacrum. So the sacrum is that nice plate that sits in between the pelvis. And then at the base of the plate, we have a tiny little triangle bone and that's the coccyx. And that is the epicenter of every pelvic floor muscle. And so we do different soft tissue mobilizations. We can do coccyx mobilizations externally or internally to try and mobilize it back into its proper orientation. Um, it's really nice to be able to do that as early as possible as hormones are still circulating in the body and that, you know, the progesterone might still be flowing. So we have more ligament laxity. So it's more easily deviated back into the proper position. Um, and then of course, pelvic floor strengthening to help 
if we're recruiting both muscles on either side of the coccyx symmetrically, that should also help to bring it back into symmetry. Um, so that's kind of some things that we work on from a physical therapy standpoint. I'll also do A-STEM through the glute muscles externally, and that can help to release that aspect. Not comfortable, but effective. <laughs> <laughs> What did you end up doing for your coccyx pain? Oh, gosh, probably just regular day-to-day -day stuff. And then I do yoga, so I think that that helps a lot just to help, um, you know, keep things stretched out, moving. And, and I wish I would have had you around back when that <laughs> happened. <so. laughs> and, of course, you know, if the pain is awful with sitting, worst-case scenario, go out there, grab yourself a donut for the short oh, yeah. term decrease that pressure. A lot of women will be like, oh, the most comfortable place for me is on the toilet. And it makes complete sense. It unloads that coccyx. So, you know, if, that, if that's a symptom for you that you have pain sitting with the exception of a toilet, that might be a good time to come and see a pelvic therapist so we can kind of see what's going on there and help you feel better. Obviously, a lot of sitting happens as a, being a new mom. And that's right. You're holding babies, you're trying to nurse or feed, whichever way that works for you. And so you That's definitely right. want to make sure sitting is not a painful position. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, it looks like we've kind of gone over our discussion with the vaginal delivery condition. So now let's kind of move along to the C-section healing and precautions for those listeners out there where this may be more relevant. So... What are the different precautions for women post-C-section that are different than vaginal? Well, again, we kind of go back to the idea that this is still a abdominal surgery. So we have to be cautious about that incision um, because the C-section incision is generally made low on the abdominal wall. Um, it still goes through the very strong connective tissue or fascia plane. And that's really the most important part of um, letting everything heal because that is the really, that's like the body stocking. It's what holds all of our insides in. And that layer is the most important to have heal. The skin healing is what we see on the outside. And again, that still is a concern if we see, you know, signs of redness, irritation, edges not coming together, or having any other sign of infection. Are you okay? Sorry. Yeah, no, you're good. Sorry. We're good. My like audio and everything kind of moved. That was weird. Cut out for a sec. Yeah. Okay, um, anyway, so I'll go back. Um, so anyway, so we always want to look for signs, um, symptoms of infection or problems with the skin healing, but the underlying tough connective tissue that holds everything together, that fascia has a line of suture that goes inside. And again, this is an absorbable suture, but during that, you know, first six weeks, that's healing. Um, for that reason in the hospital, oftentimes I will give my patients, um, different things to try to help keep that reinforced, particularly abdominal binder. Um, those are basically like a big elastic girdle with Velcro. It closes up and, and put some pressure against that incision. And I find that's very helpful to give some additional support to that area while it is healing down on that low abdominal wall. Um, other things that can be helpful, um, making sure that you're not doing a lot of heavy lifting. That first little bit, it's important to let that fascia heal together. And if you are doing a lot of things where you're using your core muscles, that can potentially pull that fascia and cause it to have a tear and not heal as well as it should or get a hernia. Um, after the first couple of weeks, I usually tell patients that it's okay to start doing a little bit more activity though, even following a cesarean section. The first two weeks, you have to be very careful about heavy lifting, um, making sure that you're resting enough to heal. But 
a lot of my patients start to feel a little bit better around that two-week mark and are asking about trying to do some more exercise. Um, things that are simple, walking, um, you know, going up and down stairs, those are fine to do the minute that you get home. Um, further exercises, though, things that are more of a regimented, you know, yoga or Pilates, we want to hold off a little bit until that fascial incision has really gotten a chance to strengthen up and heal. So somewhere between the four to six week mark, we start talking about maybe doing a little bit more activity. Um, but it usually is best to, to just stick with basic, simple things that are not using a lot of core stability for that first recovery period. Yeah, I felt like without that abdominal bind around in the very beginning, I just felt like I had absolutely no core whatsoever. And mm -hmm. it was definitely very supportive and helpful. And that means um, I know that the American College of Gynecologic says um, like in the absence of any post-operative complications that, yeah, women are safe to resume full physical activity in the four to six weeks after C-section. But before that time, women should be physically active, like the walking and the stretching like you have already alluded to. Um, and, you know, I think a few other conditions that are different include breastfeeding, right? It's kind Absolutely. of uncomfortable to try and breastfeed a baby on that incision. So I know I had to go with the football hold off to the side. Everybody's a little bit different. And so that's something to just be aware of. And if you're having difficulties, please consult a lactation specialist at your hospital before you go for the different tips on, of the trade on what different positions can be super helpful. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I think it's also very helpful. A lot of us get those little nursing pillows, boppy pillows. Support is huge, either, you know, C-section or not. It's really important because if you're breastfeeding a baby or even bottle feeding a baby, you're going to be sitting that way for quite a lot of your day. Um, so it's really important to make sure when you sit down to feed your baby that you have got a comfortable spot, um, that you've got good support for your back, arms, and shoulders. They will get sore and you will start to feel like your neck and shoulders are balled up in big knots all the time. And that's really normal. We're so concerned about getting these little babies fed that we kind of forget about what's going on with our, our posture and, and our own bodies during this time. Um, so good supportive pillows with brand new babies. They're really, you know, they're small. We think, oh, of course, they're little teeny babies. They need more um, elevation. So a lot of times, even with a good nursing pillow, we need to do an additional bolster or pillow underneath that to bring that baby up to us instead of having us come down and lean into the baby. Um, what you mentioned about a football hold is wonderful. Football hold or sideline nursing for mamas who've had C-sections can be very helpful because the baby's not sitting directly on your sore tummy. Um, it's also great because you get a chance to kind of see baby's face and line them up if you're nursing. Um, so there's a lot of things that are helpful um, that I try to help my patients with before I let them go from the hospital too to, to give them some education on that. And there's wonderful resources, lactation nurses, and your doctor should be able to help you as well. Um, but that's definitely something that we spend a lot of time with. Uh, those cute little babies eat a lot of the day long. So we got to make sure we're doing the right thing for ourselves during that time because it can really wear you out. Yes. And then how long do you recommend pelvic rest with individuals postpartum? 
Well, even with our C-section patients who often feel like things are going okay um, vaginally because they haven't had that uh, vaginal childbirth, I still recommend that everyone waits for that full six weeks so that I can see them in the office and do an examination and make sure things are going okay. We say pelvic rest, meaning no tampons, no you know menstrual cups, um, and of course, no intercourse, um, at least vaginal intercourse, because a lot of times, um, you know, after we deliver, the cervix remains a little bit open and we want to try to avoid things like, you know, infection or aggravating um, uh, tear or stitches, those kind of things. So six weeks is the general rule on that. Um, and when we see our patients in the clinic, we kind of talk about resuming uh, normal activities, using tampons, having intercourse, those kind of things. Awesome. And then I know um, some complications as well, you know, watching out for that infection with the C-section scarring, making sure it's still looking good. Um, I think one thing that I was never informed on before my C-section is the difficulty with bowels afterwards. I don't think we understand how things kind of get shifted around during the C-section. <laughs> and so not only is that a cause, but also you're on some pain medication and that Absolutely. can obviously cause issues. But holy my cow, that was probably the most surprised I was postpartum was that difficulty with that, that first week or so. So what, what kind of instructions or helpful hints do you have for patients or, or do you do you even tell patients that? Because oh, I was absolutely. like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's almost scarier than having the baby. <laughs> the first time you have to go to the bathroom. So um, true. It can be pretty pretty awful with the just as you mentioned, anesthesia, pain medication, being kind of stationary during a labor process or a post postpartum process where you've had a surgery or a vaginal delivery. Either way, all of those things conspire against us and cause some significant changes in our bowel habits. Um, my uh, go-tos are going to be things like doing a stool softener. Everybody at postpartum gets offered a stool softener that helps. Things like colase. Um, Miralax can be very helpful and is completely safe for breastfeeding moms and is great for postpartum. Um, a lot of times things that are like, you know, warm tea or warm prune juice, as old-fashioned as that is, it works great. Um, and then just kind of knowing that it's better just to, to get on with things and to say, okay, I've got to try to go to the bathroom. And if you can't, we can do suppositories, other things in the hospital um, that can be a little bit more aggressive. But yeah, that can be a really awful part of a postpartum recovery that not a lot of people talk about, probably because it kind of isn't fun to think about, but definitely is something I like to warn my patients about and we try to be proactive about so yeah that's kind of one of the reasons for this podcast is kind of talking about those sensitive topics that apparently we don't like to talk about even like with our own family mm -hmm. i would say one of the other big shockers no matter what type of delivery i think people understand it more but you don't realize the amount until it happens to you is the hair loss holy my cow oh yes hair loss and it almost comes in waves out yeah. yes uh -huh. oh that's the worst so again don't be alarmed women that is very normal and common yep and then you'll be cutting your hair short because you're gonna get sick of brushing out big handfuls of hair yeah <laughs> And then your husband tells you you're clogging the drain Brains. and then you just want to ball. Yep. 
but it comes back. That's the it good does. thing about it. It does come back, <laughs> so don't be afraid. But like physical therapy interventions for C-sections, um, obviously, is if the pain is persisting longer than the six weeks. And again, I think you really alluded to the incision that we see externally is only a fraction of the yes. size of what it is along the fascia. And exactly. so women will be kind of confused when they come into my office and they're kind of pointing to the outer pelvis and like, no, that's, that's your internal stitches. That's where Absolutely. they're ending. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's really eye-opening. A lot of women haven't they don't understand that part. And right. so, you know, we're working through the, we're doing different fascial release techniques. We'll do different scar tissue mobilizations. Um, we'll do different types of um, mobilization, including A-STEM or Graston. Um, cupping, cupping is nice and new and it got really popular after the Olympics down in <laughs> Australia. All those swimmers and gymnasts had them on, but it really does have a nice added benefit for that scar tissue. It's the yes. one manual therapy technique that we have that actually pulls tissue up and away rather than mm -hmm. compressive in nature. And it really helps to, to free up any binding from the external incision to the fascia below. And so I found really good results with this. I've done it to myself. It's uncomfortable, but effective again. And so it's a short-term intervention. If you can bite the bullet for the five minutes, then it's totally worth it for sure. And then working on a lot of abdominal and hip flexor stretching, a lot of women, if they're having so much pain there, they kind of get into this forward trunk bent posture. Yes. And so we're really promoting different yoga poses like the cobra mm -hmm. um, to really stretch out that abdomen, the, the cat cow or the cat camel. Um, yes. That's a really good option for individuals to try first if they're having some of that incisional pain. And some women come to me and they, I'll ask them, okay, try and massage it yourself at home. And some women are just kind of, it, it weirds them out. And so mm -hmm. if you're comfortable massaging yourself and you're having pain, go for that. That mm -hmm. is a really good option for you to help reabsorb that scar tissue that may be developing improperly. And so if you're fine with, with doing that yourself, I encourage you to do your own different little massage techniques around the incision and go beyond the border of what you see. So you're getting out that fascial layer below. But definitely, Absolutely. if you're having any of that pain, those are like the go-tos. Massage, cat camel, cobra. Go with awesome. those and see how you do for sure. And if that's not working, then go in and see a pelvic therapist or ask your doctor for a recommendation yeah. as well. Absolutely. Yeah, that's something that whenever I see my my post-C-section patients, I always ask them to try to start working on massaging that scar as soon as the skin heals over. I think not only does it help with pain, I think it helps cosmetically. I think it helps the scars to heal better. Um, so don't be afraid. Go ahead and, you know, sometimes I'll do some scar cream or even just something simple like coconut oil um, over the area once a day and just kind of roll over that scar gently, not so that it hurts, but just enough to mobilize that tissue. And I think it makes a big difference in getting good blood flow to the area to help things heal. Um, I think it helps the scars look nicer. Um, and I think it feels better too. So I think that's a great place to start. And I try to instruct my patients on that when I see them postpartum. That's awesome. Um, I find that some women are just so unaware of their own body, you know, it just takes a little bit of coaching and then they're, they're okay. And so yeah. that, that's been really, really nice to see for yeah. sure. I think there's a, sometimes just a little bit of fear that they're going to hurt something or, or cause right. harm to it. And it's like, Oh, I don't know if I'm allowed to touch that. It's like, Nope, that's okay. And that'll help it. So perfect. Okay. So now let's kind of move into conditions that any women 
postpartum might be having. And okay. so I think one of those is, you know, the overall just pelvic pain. Mm-hmm. Um, the average census shows that there's 1.9 children per household and one in seven individuals have pelvic pain. And so one in seven individuals that are delivering are going to have pelvic pain or had it beforehand. And so that is one major condition that I know that we see. And unfortunately, there's really not great research on it. Mm -hmm. Um, I've even seen some women or heard some women post C-section that didn't maybe have therapy afterwards or didn't do their own mobilization. And then baby two or OBGYN goes in there and half of it is just cleaning up that scar tissue before you can even get to baby. And Mm -hmm. so doing some of those techniques we just talked about before pregnancy number two can really help to prevent difficulties during C-section two, three, four down the road. Um, So, you know, Dr. Faircloth, um, does your plan of care change when treating a patient with chronic pelvic pain that comes to your office at the six week that's still complaining of that compared to those individuals that are just having acute postpartum chronic or postpartum Mm -hmm. pelvic pain? And how, how do you deal with those? Yeah. You know, that's a really good question. Um, I think it's, you know, we, it's always something that we're looking to try to help and make better um, because it can impact all aspects of our lives. I mean, even just having chronic muscle spasm in our pelvic floor, it doesn't just affect that area. It changes the way we move, the way we stand, kind of the, all of our day-to-day activities get affected by that, having these areas that can be chronically Um, kind of almost chronic muscle spasms. So I think that in general, it's a wonderful thing to have services like your your, uh, pelvic floor physical therapists like yourself who are amazing and can really help to overcome some of these, what may be, you know, lifetime of of pain and difficulty. And it really helps to um, focus on those areas, especially postpartum, because they can either get aggravated or become, you know, a new onset issue for a patient. Um, and so certainly, again, we kind of talk about there's a normal range of discomfort and pain and things that can happen, but there does come a point where those become a longer term issue or a longer term problem for some people. Fortunately, most of the time they do resolve on their own, but if they do not, that's when I start talking to my patients about options for, for um, following up with a good pelvic floor physical therapist. Um, and certainly I've seen wonderful results with that as a mode of therapy. Um, you know, so there are other types of, you know, medications, topical or systemic medications that sometimes can help to alleviate pain or to make these things better in the short term as well. Um, musculoskeletal pain, just generalized for women after babies, things from the top of your head down to the tip of your toes can sometimes hurt after we have a baby. Um, And sometimes for several months, you know, you think you're delivered and ready and done. And that's not always the case. Your body's still kind of um, getting those, all the ligaments shored up from, from being a little bit loose and wobbly during pregnancy because of that relaxing hormone. Um, A lot of us kind of feel like our joints are sore or swollen for some period of time after we have a baby. And I think that has to do with the hormonal shifts that can occur. So sometimes things that are simple, like a, uh, it's sometimes things that are simple, like um, 
ibuprofen or anti-inflammatories, massage, exercise, those things are extremely helpful to try to make some of those conditions better that may persist past that six-week mark. Yeah, I know, you know, best case scenario, if it is an individual with chronic pain, I hope that they're in an office prior to getting pregnant. Most of these women, you know, with dyspareunia can't even have intercourse, even get pregnant. And so those are definitely the ones that I coach, you know, once we're kind of getting towards the end of our plan of care and they've been able to have intercourse with their partner pain free. And, you know, I would say from a pelvic therapist standpoint, that is one of the most rewarding parts for me is being able to get a woman in here that's just distraught, can't have intercourse, wants to have a, have a baby, and then getting an email a couple weeks down the road being like, we're pregnant. And then is our dilator still safe? And (laughs) um, so I always let my women know, please email me if you have any questions because things do change. And um, so I always coach, yes, dilators are still, as long as you don't have any other precautions with pregnancy, then yes, dilators are still safe, just like intercourse. And so, you know, I'll coach them on that. If you get pregnant, continue with the dilators. We don't want you to tighten up as pelvic floor is continually trying to tighten to support Mm -hmm. baby growing. Um, And to tell them to come back immediately postpartum after their six-week checkup if they have pain persisting. Because the, the body is a incredible organism and like if we have pain its way of shutting down is closing off exactly and so after a vaginal delivery with chronic pelvic pain that's the way the body wants to revert back its old ways so to speak and so i'll really coach those women like once you get pregnant and you have your baby please come back as soon as possible things are persisting so we don't start back fresh again that we're we're not starting all over again Um, obviously the approach with our women that are coming acutely back that had no problems with intercourse no problems with tampons and now maybe childbirth created vulvar vestibulitis and so you know we have to go over different hygiene reducing perfumes doing the sits bath doing um, not wearing the tight clothing I really like using lidocaine for these patients, especially because it's that hot burning, even an ice pack right on the local area. Um, that vestibulitis is a really, really tricky one. And mm-hmm. so getting a hold and a handle on it as soon as possible and making those lifestyle changes to not irritate the tissue moving forward is really, really important. And these women almost seem more distraught than the chronic pelvic pain because they were chugging along just fine and now after baby they're like I have this adorable sweet baby however I am struggling and and pelvic pain is not only a musculoskeletal condition it affects your relationship with your partner it can create depression absolutely and so really focusing on those women to get them back to their active and healthy lifestyle as soon as possible is important and um earlier podcast kind of talked about our treatment approaches, but just as a kind of quick rundown, you know, with the assessment, we feel out the different layers of the pelvic floor, knots of the pelvic floor more present like a guitar string. I tell patients, Mm -hmm. it's not like a knot in your shoulder. It just feels different based on the way that the muscles are orientated. Um, we're looking to see, you know, how is their strength as how, what's their muscle length. Then we start, you know, lidocaine, soft tissue mobilization, progressing to the dilators, doing home exercises with the dilators. And then once they have partner involvement with the dilator, the size as large as their partner, or if not a little larger, 
that's when I'd have them try and initiate intercourse. Um, I usually recommend the missionary position first with a little bit of lidocaine just to help with that brain reprogramming. We want positive interactions. So any original pain I want associated with the dilator and immediately after dilator training, if everything went well, that's when I tell them to try intercourse for the first time. And more often than not, things go pretty well. And then just that continual positive reinforcement helps brain to understand that, yes, this is normal. This is the pressure. This is the tugging and pulling that occurs with penile penetration. Yeah. And again, I just think, you know, you don't need to suffer alone with that. It is very, it's unfortunately very common and very, very treatable. So don't live in the dark ask your provider, get help as soon as possible. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. Yeah. Okay. Well, now we've talked about some of the not so fun parts of labor and delivery postpartum. Let's maybe jump into some of the fun stuff like exercise. Like when can we start it? What are some of those red flag symptoms? So how do you counsel your patients on exercise initiation? Um, you know, we kind of talked about that with the C-section with, a with the vaginal delivery, again, there's a huge range, you know, whether it's your first baby or your sixth baby, whether you're, you know, really physically active before and during pregnancy or whether you maybe haven't been as active. Um, so certainly it's all a little individual in saying, you know, when people are ready to start getting back to a good exercise regimen. Um, but I always encourage my patients to, to start getting, you know, a little bit more gradually active as, um, you know, that two to four week mark passes, depending on the way they delivered and how they're feeling. Um, again, everyone who goes home should be able to, you know, go up and down a flight of stairs and be able to get in and out of their car and, um, you know, take a stroll around the block. Cause I think a lot of times that actually helps to get out and, and be outside too. And that postpartum period can get kind of claustrophobic cause we're staying inside a lot with our babies. And mm-hmm. so getting out and taking a nice stroll is really helpful. I think in a lot of cases and should be totally fine physically without causing any harm. Um, things that are a little more intense exercise wise, you know, Pilates or more advanced yoga, um, you know, running, uh, swimming, those things really, again, individual based on where the patient is starting out. Um, but certainly by about four to six weeks, a lot of women can get back to regular exercise regimens. Um, again, I always say to be gentle on yourself. It's, you know, nine, 10 months really to have a baby. And it takes sometimes that long to start feeling back to normal after a baby. Um, We have a lot of joint laxity, as I kind of talked about earlier, because of this hormone relaxant that our bodies make. Um, All of our joints, not just the ones in our pelvis, start to get loosened up and the ligaments get stretchier. So a lot of times the support in our backs, in our core, um, those things, and even knees, you know, knee pain is really common in pregnancy because the ligaments in your knees get looser. Um, those things take a while to go back to kind of your baseline. They usually do, but during that postpartum period, we are more vulnerable to, you know, kind of sports related injuries if we overdo it. So it's super important to listen to your body when you're getting back to exercising, um, and get back into things gradually. Don't go out and try to do, you know, a hundred planks or sit-ups. Don't just take it easy, you know, go back and do a couple and see how you feel the next day. Don't go try to run 10 miles, do a little jog and see how you feel the next day and be gradual about getting back into your usual exercise regimen. Um, A lot of times it's pretty 
easy to tell where your limits are, but I know a lot of us want to get back to feeling like ourselves. So sometimes we overdo it. And, you know, most of the time it's just going to end up making you feel kind of sore the next day, but you know, we hate to have a, have an injury or get a setback because of that. Definitely. I was kind of surprised, you know, I think in like PT school, of course, they always want to err on the side of caution. So they always say, wait till the six week mark before you start any treatments. And so digging into the research for this, I was interested to see, yeah, kind of what you were just saying, how um, the ACOG was saying just to resume gradually after pregnancy, as soon as medically safe, depending on the mode of delivery and the presence or absence of any medical complications. Um, they act, the research did actually find that rapid resumption of these activities has not been found to result in adverse effects. But again, you know, everybody is individualized. Um, I was kind of interested that I read that on their, one of their uh, opinion statements um, and that pelvic floor exercises that kegels they can be initiated immediately postpartum absolutely in fact you know when you look at it it actually does help to do our lovely little kegel exercises during and pretty close to after delivery whatever way babies come out that's not an a uh, harmful thing and in fact for strengthening and um, improving blood flow to the pelvic floor that's actually really helpful um, so yeah, practicing those little squeeze exercises are, uh, can be very helpful in our recovery and actually do help with uh, bladder function too, especially if we're a little bit leaky after we deliver. How do you um, coach patients on a Kegel? Like, how do you know if they're doing it right? I have so many women that come to me that are like, I don't even know if I'm doing it right. What is a Kegel or, you know, and so I'm curious, like how you coach women on doing the Kegel those little pelvic floor exercises. Yeah. The classic teaching is to say, you know, the feeling that you would have if let's say you had to jump up in the middle of going pee. So you got to run to the other room because your kid's in there doing something crazy. You go <gasps> and you pull those muscles up tight and you're going to stop the flow of urine. You're going to get up and run. That's the, that's the sensation you're looking for with it, with a Kegel exercise. Um, and it's supposed to be done repetitively and they're supposed to be held. You know, I was taught 10 times a day, 10 sets for 10 seconds a piece. That's a lot of kegels. But yes. if you remember to do them at all, I say, you know, whatever amount you can do is great. But that kind of drying up and in feeling, or, you know, if you really had to pee, but you can't right now, it's kind of that same sensation of pulling up and in from the very base of your pelvis. Awesome. Yeah. That about how you do it. <laughs> yeah, that's very similar. Sometimes people do better with like, you're in a movie theater, you don't want to let the gas escape. Some people don't always understand that vaginal and rectal, it's all the same pelvic floor. They're all innervated by the same muscles. You can't do a vaginal squeeze without a rectal squeeze. I've had patients try and argue that one with me. I'm like, no, I promise it's impossible. <laughs> so that's been always pretty funny. Um, so we're going to jump in a little bit more in the urinary incontinence, but let's kind of talk a little bit more about so like aerobic exercises and lactating women totally totally safe one yes. major thing is though just make sure to increase those calories about 500 a day on top of you know your normal dietary intake for your bmi um you know, just for comfort, it can be helpful to pump her to nurse immediately before so that we're not engorged as well as I actually learned. And, you know, everybody's breast milk is totally different. Um, but I had one individual um, during a conference talk about how 
her baby was not about her breast milk after activity because of the lactate that she felt built mm -hmm. up in it. So if you notice that your kids aren't super stoked about nursing or breastfeeding and, uh, immediately after physical activity, that may be a reason. So it might just be a mini pump and dump session to get that lactated breast milk out of the system and then <laughs> it should be no problems again. But I thought that was a pretty interesting idea that I had not even been aware of, especially in that, and this individual during the talk was like a very heavy weight lifter. Uh -huh. And so obviously that getting activity, acid yeah, up. that's yeah. going to get a little bit more than maybe cardio, but that's just something to be aware of for those nursing or pumping women. Yeah. Um, and like healthy weight loss, right? I think yeah. nursing women don't think that it's safe to lose weight. What is your opinion on that? Well, you know, and again, it's so individual based on how much someone gained during their pregnancy, what their pre-pregnancy weight is. Um, and then again, yeah, if they're breastfeeding, if they're bottle feeding, how their postpartum recovery is going based on the way that they delivered. Um, but definitely it's normal and expected to lose some weight after you have a baby. Um, how rapidly that should occur is, is somewhat individual, but there are cases where we lose weight either way too rapidly and that can cause us to have trouble with maintaining a milk supply um, and just staying healthy you know you don't want to lose so so much um, be in a rapid fashion because that can cause you to have other problems and I do see that sometimes with my patients with postpartum depression although not always um, and that can be kind of a red flag because you know interest in eating may be off just because of a depressive issue postpartum um, but again, it is normal to lose, you know, maybe a pound or two a week. Everybody's different on that too. And, um, you know, again, I, breastfeeding um, is burning a lot of calories, but our bodies are also designed to have some caloric reserve, um, you know, in order to maintain our milk supply. So sometimes it actually takes a little bit longer to start losing weight rapidly when we're breastfeeding. And sometimes we don't notice that. Um, but either way is, is pretty physiologic and, and we can see, you know, kind of fall either way. Um, making sure you're getting enough to eat that's healthy, that you're getting hydrated, especially in our climate here in Salt Lake, it's usually pretty dry here and it's easy to get dehydrated. Um, and that does impact our ability to, you know, have a good milk supply if we're nursing and even just recover from the, the stress and strain of delivery if we had, you know, a C-section or vaginal delivery. So it's, those are important things to look at. Um, exercising is good for both our physical well-being as well as, as I mentioned earlier, it's good to be um, active. It helps to avoid postpartum depression and it helps us to feel better um, after a baby. So that's all really important stuff. Awesome. And again, you know, per the American Medical Association, 20 to 30 minutes of moderate level activity <laughs> five days a week. That should be what every healthy individual is doing at across the lifespan. <laughs> right. <laughs> Anybody postpartum for sure. Um, and then of course, those individuals with the gestational diabetes exercise is even more important. Um, if you have gestational diabetes, you are more prone to develop type two later in Absolutely. life. And the best combat of that is exercise and diet. And that's so right. that's a very, very important um, time to initiate exercise. And you're a brand or you're, you're a mom. You want to kind of show those awesome patterns to your children. So then that gets instilled in them and they live ha happy and healthy lives as well. 
Do you have any other comments on like post-gestational diabetes and your maybe instruction on activity and diet for those individuals? Um, you know, certainly it's not a bad idea. A lot of my patients who have diabetes are really great at following that, that low-carb diet. Um, and many times we do, you know, the recommendation is to do some testing at six weeks postpartum to see if people still have a, a residual diabetes. Uh, type 2 diabetes. Um, but even if not, it, I always say it's a great idea to kind of instill those habits just to day-to-day -day life because of that increased risk for uh, long-term risk for developing type 2 diabetes later, later in life for women who have that kind of genetic predisposition and who demonstrate that by having gestational diabetes. Um, so, you know, not that we need to be quite as strict um, for people who have just gestational diabetes that resolves after their delivery. Um, I still think it's very helpful to maintain some of those good dietary and exercise habits that so many of my patients are just so diligent and great about when they're pregnant. Um, and that's great to kind of continue in that uh, postpartum and just kind of moving forward in lifetime. So awesome. All right, moving on. So I think one of the topics that has been getting a ton of publicity recently, yes. which is the diastasis rectus abdominis. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so there's been some awesome research coming out. There's research in the making right now I know of out of California to kind of look and find. There's absolutely no gold standard established at this point in time for an exercise protocol. So I know right now in California, they're trying to get a very large uh, study population for randomized controlled trial to try and identify a gold standard that can be utilized by all therapists moving forward. Um, so in your clinical experience, what factors do you think contribute um, to this condition persisting in patients? You know, that's a great question. Um, and again, it's, it, I think a lot of it has to do with kind of where we start out pre-pregnancy, how big our baby is, how many babies we have. People with twins have a higher risk for having their rectus muscles separate in that midline because there's just more baby in there. Um, but anybody can have that separation and it's fairly physiologic. It's really common. Um, you know, what I think about it as is that, you know, those two big sheets of rectus muscles right in the front of our belly um, tend to try to stretch, but there's only so fast that they can stretch and grow while we're pregnant and our bellies are popping out forward. So what ends up happening to a lot of us is they part kind of, I always think of it like a couple of curtains out to the side. There's still fascia in between us. So that connective tissue that I talked about earlier is still between the muscles. It's just that the muscles themselves have separated out to the side because they just are not quite able to make it up and around that belly anymore. Um, the way that you can tell if this has occurred is when you are laying on your back and you go to sit up almost like you're doing a crunch or a sit-up, you can actually kind of see that central area between those two muscles tent up. So for a lot of us, it's kind of a, a strange thing when you look down that first time when you're pregnant and you see your tummy and you're sitting up, it's not just that baby bump down low. It's there's this little tenting in the right middle of our belly. And oftentimes it's up right underneath um, kind of our, where our ribs end at the upper part of our abdominal wall. You can see it the most pronounced. Um, but it's generally something that um, happens a little bit for everybody who has a, a pregnancy that goes full term. Not, all, not every single patient has it, but most of us have a little bit of it. But sometimes it can be very extreme where there's a great big gap, you know, a couple hand breaths sometimes. Um, most of the time postpartum, uh, it'll resolve 
fairly well, um, but you can still, still, still sometimes see that separation um, in a lot of women, uh, especially when you go to do an abdominal contraction and there's that little space in between those abdominal muscles in the midline, right where the belly button is. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to see different patients will present differently. Some people, when I have them sit up during the, the test in the clinic, it might still do that tenting or the opposite now is diving deep. So they can kind of present two different ways. If you try and do a sit up and now you have a cave or a cavity mm -hmm. diving deep, that's also an indication that you have a diastasis. So in the clinic, you do a partial sit up and we're going to try and see the finger breadth separation between the two rectus abdominis or what I call the washboard muscles mm -hmm. of the abdomen. Um, a huge, huge precaution for women. If you think you have this or you know you have this, avoiding any crunches in the beginning is really important. We want to avoid exercises that are going to engage those rectus abdominis as we're shortening them, um, which is called a concentric um, contraction. And so we want to avoid that. And so I'll have women that come in and I'm like, oh yeah, you have like a two finger. And they're like, I've been doing crunches for like the last six weeks. And I'm like, okay, we'll stop that. And so, I mean, that even comes to getting up out of bed, roll onto your side and push up just like when you were pregnant. Um, the biggest exercise is really that drawing in maneuver. So really sucking belly button in towards your spine. That is the best way to engage that transverse abdominis. Um, mm -hmm. My approach with, with exercises is we're using the diaphragm and the rectus abdominis, or I mean the transverse abdominis to bring that top down and bottom up healing of the diastasis. There's awesome, awesome new research out there to use, um, electrical stimulation to fatigue the muscles. Um, so most recent article by um, Kamal and Yosef was published just recently in 2019 and they used um, two groups, one that had NMES or neuromuscular electrical stimulation uh, pulsed along the abdominal muscles and then group B where it was just the abdominal exercises and they found a significant difference in both waist circumference waist hip ratio, peak torque of the muscles, max rep, and the average power when the addition of the NMES was provided. Now for those nerds out there, I'm going to tell you the <laughs> protocol that was used for the NMES because, you know, there's some studies out there that will talk about it, but they won't say exactly what protocol they use with the electrical stimulation. And it's really hard to reproduce something if you don't have those details. So get your pens out. Here we go. <laughs> So the output current was 34 milliamps plus or minus five. Um, the wave parameters are pulse width between 100 and 600 microseconds and the pulse rate was one to 500 pulses per second. Um, so for layman terms, it's pretty much you're using the Russian protocol. You want to ramp it up to as high as the patients can tolerate to where you're seeing that abdomen twitching. And then you, for me, I'm doing five minutes on each side prior to their exercise. And then immediately after that, I'm doing a stem to the abdomen. That ha a stem has an, a whole abdominal protocol that I'll do. And then I will use kinesio tape to approximate the abdominal muscles with an X pattern. The center of the X is generally at the greatest width of where that diastasis is. As long as an individual doesn't have allergies to adhesives, then everything is good. And then I tell women to try and leave it on for like five days at a time if they're having no reactions um, and then take it off when it's wet. 
as well as moisturize afterwards. And then I usually try and see these individuals like once a week for six weeks and then every other week for a few more visits. It takes time for these muscles to reunite. And so it's not a fast progression. So I like to see them over like a 10 week time frame and really push the home program with different transverse abdominus activations, heel brace fallout, um, supine marches, um, core neutral activation is the most important. Um, we'll use a blood pressure cuff underneath the small of their back for a visual cue that they're stabilizing properly with different exercises. Um, I'll teach proper lifting techniques because those car seats with babies, as babies oh. grow, they get so heavy. And so I always tell women, suck your belly button in, suck your pelvic floor in, tighten those glutes. And then I tell them to rub their belly, pat their tummy. No, just kidding. <laughs> that's what they feel like. And so there is a lot of things to think about in the beginning, but once you really put it into practice, that muscle memory will kick in pretty quickly and you'll be able to do that without really consciously thinking about all those steps involved. So I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, what role do you think things like um, wearing an abdominal binder for a longer period than just kind of that immediate recovery? Do you think that's helpful? Or I've also heard people talk about it might weaken those muscles. What is your thought on that? Yeah. So I generally go towards the weaker okay. side of that argument. But I would say generally I'm looking at the breadth of the separation. Mm -hmm. Generally, if it's four fingers or larger, I will encourage them to continue using that binder until it has reduced the separation to closer to three fingers. And then at that time, the tape is better at allowing for that approximation and that uh, almost PNF cueing to the brain to engage those muscles rather mm. than a band-aid like I feel the abdominal binder is. Okay. But I do think if it's a large separation to prevent a hernia, uh -huh. I think it's really important to still wear those binders. That's my approach. Great. Cool. Yeah. Oh, that was an awesome question. Thank you. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. So that diastasis, I mean, we could have a whole talk on it, <laughs> but, uh, Definitely. It's very much treatable now. I think, you know, old times would say, no, it's not treatable. You're just going to have to get the surgery. And mm. it's not true. Ladies, there is an option. <laughs> and gentlemen, to be honest, there oh, yeah. I, I treat men with the diastasis as well. They get the, I have a man that's like, oh, there's like an alien baby when I sit up. And I'm like, well, that's a diastasis. <laughs> so I'm like, it's treatable. One thing mm -hmm. is really important is weight loss too. It's usually those men that come in that have the barrel shape working. And so I'm like, well, if we can decrease some weight in that abdomen, then that will decrease that separation that's happening, which is very similar to a pregnant woman's belly. Yeah. Sure. So men, you're, you're not off the hook with that one. That's one thing you can get for sure. <laughs> so I guess now we can talk last but not least, kind of the topic we started on for a little bit, but the urinary incontinence. Sure. So it's, pretty interesting to see that yes american college of gynecologic in says to initiate the um, pelvic floor contractions in order to reduce the urinary incontinence um, and to do it soon and that physical therapy can be an added benefit with that um, there was a study done in 2019 in the International Urogynecology Journal that had 410 women, 75% completed this questionnaire that reported rates of stress urinary incontinence, urge incontinence, or mixed incontinence, um, and 45% had stress urinary incontinence, 38% had urge, and 27% had both postpartum. 
Um, another study found um, by Moss et al. in a study in 2019 with 203 women postpartum found that increased risk for urinary incontinence were, you know, if there was a family history of a prolapse or incontinence, increased BMI, and increasing age. And mm-hmm. so, you know, Kegels are something to do for a lifetime. I tell women that when they come here, we got to figure out a routine that works best for you. Is it when you're brushing your teeth? Is it at a stoplight? Mm-hmm. Is it, you know, that's, I think that's always the funny joke. You never know what someone's doing at a stoplight. Um, <laughs> you know, when every time after you've urinated and you're washing your hands and you're standing, um, a lot of these women have, so stress urinary incontinence being when we have an increase in abdominal pressure. So physical activity, laughing, sneezing, coughing, those mm-hmm. tend to be like the big ones. And so you really need to practice these Kegels in those positions. Most people aren't sneezing lying down. So if you do all <laughs> your Kegels lying down, you're not going to be able to control that if you're sitting or standing. Right. So you need to do them in the different positions for those 10 reps that you're doing or those 10 sets that you're doing throughout the day. And you need to do them throughout the day because if you're trying to do all 100 at one time, (laughs) your quality by the 99th is going to be very bad. (laughs) Um, So really trying to remember to do it throughout the day is really, really important. Um, And and I'll encourage them to practice, you know, take deep breaths as you're trying. We weird. Are you still there? You paused. I lost my connection. Is okay. it okay now? Okay, yep, we're good. Yeah, now. my internet just went like crazy. No, ah! we're good. No worries. We've been doing so good. Ah! Yes, that's okay. <laughs> wait, 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 we, nice. we can cut things out, so it's totally. But I know I'm like, oh, that's right. This is able to be edited, so. Yes, so we're good there. Um, cool. I missed the last thing that you said. Okay. I'm the, oh, yeah. So when, oh, okay, I'm going to take a break. So when it comes to stress urinary incontinence, you really want to practice these different activities. So for example, sneezing and coughing, we take a big breath before we do that, right? We go, oh, achoo, or, oh, and it's usually like the second or third sneeze where it happens. And so if you practice maintaining that pelvic squeeze or Kegel when you're taking deep breaths, that can really help to improve. The other thing a lot of women do is they either are doing the Kegel when they're holding their breath or they're breathing in you actually want to try and coordinate it as you're breathing out. Pelvic floor diaphragm, respiratory diaphragm are related. When we breathe in, they both draw down. When we breathe out, they both draw up. So if we can facilitate that natural motion that's occurring as we're breathing out and facilitating that Kegel, we're going to have greater carryover. We also are going to create some muscle memory because coughing, laughing, sneezing, we breathe out with all of those. What do you know? So if we can create that muscle memory, that can really help to improve that. Um, So from a clinical standpoint, at what point do you find it appropriate to refer to PT rather than, hey, just try this on your own? And then, you know, what are your recommendations at that six-week postpartum checkup? Sure. Um, You know, a lot of people first little bit after we have a baby, you stand up and sometimes you just sleep and it's kind of startling and it's definitely an unpleasant surprise when it starts to happen. Um, Fortunately, a lot of that has to do with just kind of immediate uh, swelling, tissue uh, compression and damage that can kind of happen as we're having these babies. A lot of times if you've had a catheter in place, it can cross some wires on the signaling that comes from our bladder too. 
Um, plus, we've just gone from having a little person sitting on top of that bladder for months and months, making us have to go very frequently and, and really quite urgently a lot of the time to not having that pressure. So a lot of times it's quite easy to sit and be grateful that you're not getting up to the restroom every one to two minutes, but then forget to go for a couple hours. So that can also disrupt what's going on with our bladders postpartum. A lot of those immediate changes do, again, sort of improve just on their own by virtue of healing and, you know, moving away from things like the catheter being placed or, you know, the changes that our bladder has while we're postpartum without a baby sitting on it. Um, however, there are a lot of women also that come to me at that six-week check and say, hey, look, this is still kind of a problem or it is a really, really big problem. Um, we talk about doing those exercises at that time. I do an exam. A lot of this is a mechanical issue with stress incontinence. Stress incontinence is a little bit different than um, urgency incontinence. Urgency has to do with the bladder having a, a bit of a spasm or um, squeezing when it really is not appropriate to, to squeeze down. Um, that leads to symptoms. Or urgency incontinence is more symptoms of suddenly having to go, not being able to stop once you start if you're leaking. Um, it has to do more with like a sudden onset of just having to go without having any control over that. Stress incontinence has to do with losing a little of the support that's underneath the urethra or where the pee comes out of the bladder. And that is right above the vaginal opening. So when we have a baby vaginally or when we've had a catheter in that area, it can sometimes become uh, a little bit less strong. The Kegel exercises help to bring that uh, pelvic floor up and bring the perineal body back up so it creates better reinforcement. But it's like a leaky gasket. It's holding a lot of the time, but if you put that extra strain from a cough, sneeze, um, jumping on a trampoline, sometimes just moving around, exercising, running can do it. Um, that's because there's more mechanical pressure behind that little gasket. So bringing those muscles up and in and trying the Kegel exercises can help. But there's physical signs of having that, uh, we call it hypermobility or having it a little bit less um, well supported on a physical exam. So that's something that your, your doctor can take a look at in the office and say, you know, a lot of times I'll have patients practice giving me a little cough or a sneeze or pushing a little bit um, and I can kind of see if it's a little less stable than it than it probably should be. In those cases, um, if it's really troubling, if it's an all day, gosh, you know, I just, I can't hardly leave the house. There's some patients that really benefit from um, doing physical therapy. There's other things like pessaries. Um, and some patients really do need to have surgery down the road as well to help this. Um, but a lot of my patients, especially when we are in between babies, the surgery isn't always the ideal solution. So physical therapy can be a real mainstay of therapy. Um, and really does help a lot of my patients too. So yes, I start them on doing their exercises on their own. A lot of the time that helps, but if they are not, not doing well with that, then it's definitely helpful to get them in with, with somebody who can do some pelvic floor retraining and physical therapy. Awesome. Yeah, it's it's been nice. I would say in regards to pelvic health, this is probably the most highly studied condition. And so, I mean, there's been a Cochrane review in 2014 that looked at pelvic muscle training versus no treatment. And it verified that treatment with pelvic floor muscles um, reduced leakage, um, the amount, the frequency, 
um, it decreased office visits and um, it improved full emptying of the bladder. Then there was another meta-analysis of pelvic floor muscle training by the International Journal of Gynecology and Obstetrics in 2017 that um, included 12 separate studies, 763 patients, and it also demonstrated positive outcomes measured by digital palpation, um, the muscle strength via the Oxford scale, um, as well as the pressure via peri periometer. And it also improved quality of life. And so I think, you know, seeing all of these studies and randomized controlled studies have come out that verify, yes, pelvic floor training can help reduce urine leakage. It can improve your quality of life. And so definitely work on your Kegels at home. If you're not getting where you want to be, then come on in. We have different options. We have biofeedback sensors that will demonstrate a visual feedback to you, how strong your contraction is. Worst case scenario, we do have a vaginal stimulator that actually creates a muscle contraction if there's a really quite a disconnect between the brain um, and the pelvic floor. Not comfortable, but effective. Uh -huh. So <laughs> and a few things we've talked about today are not comfortable, but effective. So um, don't let that be a reason you're not coming in. You know, it's amazing how much money our society spends on putting the bandaid on, which is uh -huh. just doing urinary pads. And that gets really, really expensive over time. Sure. So if you can spend the time and the money sooner than later, you will honestly save yourself money down the road, whether it's, it's pads or, or surgery. Right. So definitely get on things sooner than later. Don't let them. And again, women. Oh, I think the worst thing that I hear in my office, oh, it's normal to, to, to pee your pants after you've had kids. It's normal. You'll never be able to jump on a trampoline. And I think the biggest education I have is differentiating the difference between normal and common. Yes. Back, back pain, very, very common. Back pain is absolutely not normal. Right. Same thing goes for urinary incontinence. Mm -hmm. Common is yes. not normal. Mm -hmm. There are women that I've seen that come in here for diastasis, six babies down the road that have, that have been all vaginal, no urine leakage. Mm -hmm. So I promise it <laughs> is not normal and it can improve. So please ask your physician, look online, find a pelvic therapist. You do not need to live with a panty liner on every day of your life. <laughs> well, Oh my goodness. I feel like time went by so fast. Um, this has been such a, a great podcast. Um, Dr. Faircloth, what would you say is the greatest takeaway that you think listeners should have from this podcast? If you could think of mm. one overarching theme, what would you say if they took only one thing away from this podcast, what would it be? You know, I think it's a good question. I mean, there's so much that that we've talked about and there's so much that happens. I mean, it's kind of an amazing journey, um, pregnancy, childbirth, postpartum. It's, it's amazing what our bodies can do and what they do. Um, and so I think it's just really important to feel like you have a good line of communication with your doctors. Um, if you are worried about something, if something just doesn't seem right, you know, I always tell my patients, I want to listen to what it is that is your intuition telling you, you know, if you feel like something is not quite right, don't try to talk yourself out of it. We are here to help guide you. Um, but sometimes we don't know something's going on. So the way that you can, you can, 
key us in on those things, you know, tell us if you're worried about something, show us if you're having, having pain or something's changed in your life. Those are things that, you know, like me as a doctor, I'm here to help with those things and I'll do my very best to try to try to come up with a good solution and try to help. Um, so, you know, again, a lot of things about having babies can be a little bit, you know, a little bit of a wild ride, but um, a lot of it is, is uh, stuff that can be made better if it's a problem. So yeah, just reach out. We're here. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you all for listening. If you would like to speak with a specialist, please email podcast at mlrehab.com. I would like to thank Dr. Faircloth for coming on the show today. Thank you so much, Madison. It's great to talk with you. Thanks for the opportunity. You know it. And if listeners want more information or would like to get in contact with you specifically, what is the best way to do so? Oh, there's all sorts of ways. Our office here at Old Farm OBGYN has a uh, Facebook site, Instagram website, our phone number 801-261-3605. I have a nurse here Monday through Friday. If you have questions or worries, um, give us a call and we're happy to help you out. Awesome. Well, thank you again for listening and please tune in next month for our next podcast. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Exercises that are safe and appropriate for some people may not be for you. No treatment program should be undertaken without first consulting your physical therapist or physician. The contents of this podcast is protected under United States copyright laws and may not be reproduced, redistributed, transmitted, displayed, published, or broadcast without prior written permission of Mountain Land Physical Therapy.